Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Happy to welcome back Michael J. New, who is, of course, uh, one of the uh, writers at National Review Online. He's also a senior associate scholar at Charlotte Logier Institute and assistant professor of practice, the Catholic University of America, the Catholic University of America. Mind you, Michael, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Much appreciated. Michael, it's, it's a tough week, right? I mean, uh, the... Um, Referendum in Ohio, Ohio issue one, um, uh, passed by a fairly large margin. I mean, as, as mm. these go, um, uh, creating a state-based, state constitution-based right to abortion. Um, you wrote afterwards that there's still reason for optimism in Ohio and uh, and that, um, you know, there's still reason for optimism in engaging an, an abortion in the electorate. Now, you know, I, I think it's good to have some optimism here. I'm wondering um, if you want to talk a little bit about why you see that uh, so quickly after this after this loss in Ohio. You know, I think first, thanks for having me on. Uh, I think we'd be clear about what happened in Ohio. I mean, it was a disappointment. It is a setback. Um, you know, abortion policy in Ohio will likely become much, much more permissive because issue one passed. Uh, that abortion will be legal throughout all nine months of pregnancy. There's a good chance these states' pro-life, parental involvement law will be endangered. There's also, I think, a good chance these states' Medicaid program may be required to cover abortion, which would result in taxpayer funding of abortion. So it is a loss, it's a setback. But I always try to take the long view of things. That uh, you know, I view we were never promised a smooth glide path to victory. There's going to be setbacks and defeats and disappointments along the way. But I think the important thing is just to be you know, consistent and to be prayerful and to be persistent. And I think that you look at where we are today versus a few years ago, you know, Roe v. Wade's overturned. Uh, preborn children are protected in 14 states. There's two other states that have heartbeat loss in effect that protect the preborn after six weeks gestation. And we look at these 16 states. I think these laws are pretty durable and will stick around for a while. Uh, and nine of these states really don't have direct democracy. Uh, Mississippi sort of has it. That's under some litigation right now, but they're um, you know they have very difficult ballot access requirements there. So I think the Mississippi law is safe. When you look at the other states that have you know strong pro life laws in place. These are all states where like Joe Biden you know got like less than thirty six percent of the vote in two thousand twenty. These are pretty conservative states. The one state I think that you know is a bit vulnerable might be Missouri, uh, but Missouri actually has a very strong history of like really good pro life activism. The Archdiocese of St. Louis was actually the first archdiocese to have like a full-time respect life ministry. Um, and they just you know pioneered a lot of sidewalk counseling, a lot of street-level activism. So I think pro-lifers will be able to put up a, a good fight in Missouri. So again, this is a disappointment, it is a setback, but long term, you know, we've made a lot of progress. And I think the reasons to think that progress will continue. Michael, you know, I uh, it must be a little dismaying for you to hear some of the um the broader post-election debate taking place about, you know, the overall losses, because I mean, it was not a good night for Republicans on, on Tuesday. And this is not, not the first time that this has happened, right? The Republicans didn't have a very good night in the midterms and they were expecting, you know, they were expecting much better results. Then I think they were expecting much better results on Tuesday, although I'm not sure what the, I'm not really sure what the expectation level was set. And then mm -hmm. after both of those disappointments, everybody started pointing at pro-lifers and the abortion issue as the reason for the disappointment. I, I, I understand that abortion's part of that, but I think that it's hardly the only thing. And I'm wondering 
how you see that. Is it, is, is it a case of that abortion is really the setback here? And if so, why? Well, I'll say this. I mean, you know, 2023 doesn't really give us a lot of data points. I mean, we had elections in Virginia. You know, that's become a tougher state for us politically. It's a state that's kind of trending away from us demographically. You know, we do have a good Republican governor in Glenn Youngkin. And I mean, Republicans, you know, didn't get, we didn't, you know, get control of the state house or state senate, but we weren't blown out either. I mean, you know, we kind of held serve effectively. So it wasn't like this was some dramatic defeat there. Kentucky, I think just kind of circumstantially, you have kind of a pretty popular Democratic governor there who uh, seems to be a a strong statewide candidate. And the Republicans did win the governor's race in Mississippi. So, you know, they obviously expect to win in the deep red state, but, but they did. So, but just, I'm saying 2023 doesn't really give us a real whole lot of data points to look at this. I mean, one thing I will say is that supporters of legal abortion, frankly, are more amped up and a bit more organized and more motivated. You know, that that's to be expected. Uh, we're probably not getting as many crossover votes as maybe we used to. You know, there are people who are supporters of legal abortion who sometimes do vote Republican on other issues. Those voters are probably a bit more likely to vote Democrat these days. So, I mean, I don't deny that, uh, you know, there's been a bit of a you know, backlash. I don't deny that uh, the other side is a bit more motivated, but I don't think it's been as you know, dramatic as some people think. Uh, Republicans still hold a majority of seats in the U.S. House. Um, you know, we didn't sustain huge election losses last night. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, it's had an impact, but I don't think it's been as decisive as many people think. Well, I mean, I, I think there's more than one thing going on, too. And and uh, we were having problems winning elections prior to Dobbs, right? Mm-hmm. And and so, uh, you know, I, I don't want to get into too many. I don't want to get too far off the topic here because we're, we're here to talk about abortion policy. Um, and to the extent that Republicans are not doing well with the abortion argument, I think it's clear that they didn't do well in Ohio, at least. I don't right. know how much that had to do with what happened in Virginia or what happened in the Pennsylvania Supreme Court election. I doubt very much mm-hmm. that it had much to do with that. Um, but it, did, it didn't work very well in Ohio. Where do you think Republicans are going wrong in their approach to this in in you know competitive election cycles. I, I mean, I guess we can start with what happened in Ohio. What do you think happened in Ohio? You know, I think the other side with direct democracy campaigns. I mean, you know, money plays a big role in who wins. Yeah. The other side did outspend us. And I don't like to hit that hobby horse, but it is true. Uh, you know, the other side has greater material resources than pro-lifers do. I think they kind of got out of the gate faster with ads. I think they kind of succeeded defining the issue before pro-lifers did. I do think the one strategic mistake pro-lifers made is I think we put a lot of eggs in the basket of parental rights and parental involvement. I'm not sure that's the strongest point to make in 2023. Uh, People are getting married later. They're having fewer children. uh, Fewer people are parents. Also, teen pregnancy rates have gone down a lot uh, since the early 90s. So I don't think that teen pregnancies and teen abortions are as concerning to parents today as they were to parents in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So I would have probably focused my fire on the issue of taxpayer funding for abortion. You know, I think that's kind of a a stronger note to hit. Almost everybody pays taxes. Most people oppose taxpayer funding of abortion. You know, people are feeling some strain economically. That's kind of the one thing I would would hit. Um, The other side has also been good at generating, you know, anecdotes. Um, you know, they do have these stories about women with difficult pregnancies. Uh, in the case of Ohio, there was the TV ad that featured, you know, the couple who had to get an abortion in another state. Uh, I think that ad was misleading for a variety of reasons. 
You know, the reason why they went out of state is because there was an abortion doctor in Pennsylvania who tragically agreed to abort their child for a relatively low price. I think under the existing Ohio laws, uh, it was still possible for them to obtain an abortion. Uh, I don't want to go down the whole convoluted list of things, but I think that ad was really misleading. You know, pro-lifers want pregnant women to get appropriate medical care. You know, we're not trying to criminalize ectopic pregnancies. We're not trying to criminalize miscarriages. I mean, I think we have to be abundantly clear about that. But the other side has muddied the waters a bit. And I think some people are concerned that their sister, mother, niece uh, won't be able to get appropriate medical care because of a badly drafted pro-life law. That seems to resonate with people. So I think we really have to push back against that. My feeling on this is that Republicans have never really figured out how to be uh, strategic in talking about abortion. I mean, my experience in this goes back a long ways, right? Um, all the way back to Todd Aiken and before that, right? Because the problem is, is that politicians and, and office seekers like to talk in slogans, right? Mm -hmm. And they borrow slogans from activists who actually have a much better understanding of what the slogans mean and what their limitations are. And Todd Aiken, in I think it was the 2012 cycle, ended mm -hmm. up blowing it for everybody. It's either 2010 or 20, 2012. I forget what, what it was. It may have been 2010. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, talked about how women really can't get pregnant when they're when they're raped. And it's like, are, are you are you kidding me? You know, with that yeah. type of um and I think that what we saw after Dobbs is initially a jump into a whole bunch of things, you know, a whole bunch of proposals at the federal and state levels that that weren't really very well considered in terms of where public opinion was at the moment, rather than just kind of letting things sit. Yeah. You, know, when, you know, when you win, sometimes it's just best to stop. Um, mm -hmm. And then after that, I think they got scared because of the blowback that they got initially, they've been scared to get into debates with this. They don't want to talk about it. Did you see as much of that in this cycle? I think you had a much better view of this in terms of the Ohio issue because it was explicitly a single issue um, uh, issue. And, and do you think that Republicans are improving on how they talk about this? Because my, my gut feeling is that they're still all over the place. You saw this is the debate, right? We're, yeah. we're mm -hmm. Very good, very good discussion. I really enjoyed the discussion on it, where you had three of the of the presidential contenders talk about federalism, which I think is a completely mm -hmm. legitimate thing. And you had Tim Scott very passionately talking about, no, I think that this is a federal issue and it really needs to be addressed on a federal issue. Still a mm -hmm. good argument. And then Nikki Haley kind of going, well, we just kind of kind of find out where everybody's at. And it's like, eh, I'm not necessarily sure that that's helpful. And I think mm -hmm. that muddies the water up a bit. I mean, you have to have some sort of standard right i mean federalism yeah. standard. tim scott had a standard i'm not necessarily sure that let's see what you know let's put our fingers up in the wind and see what we want to do is really a standard mm -hmm. well yeah i'm you're right i think republicans you know are struggling to come with you know language that they think will work and you kind of saw that with debate with you know people running in different directions i mean chris christie just seemed to say it's a federalism type issue let the states hash it out you know, Tim Scott did come out pretty strongly in favor of a protection of the preborn after 15 weeks, which I, I do appreciate. I do think we need, you know, the president to show some leadership on this issue. You know, that's what I do want out of a pro-life president. You know, we did see, you know, that kind of leadership at the federal level with a partial birth abortion ban. You know, that was useful for us. Uh, it did, you know, shift public opinion. It did show how permissive abortions laws were. 
It did show how extreme many Democrats are on this issue. So I think that you know, a lot of these incremental laws can serve a very powerful educational purpose. You know, I think any of the Republicans on stage would be a vastly, vastly better president than Joe Biden would ever be. You know, I think that they would do some good things for pro-lifers if they were in office. Uh, but I really do want to see someone, you know, see them show some leadership. You know, I do, in some respects, like Nikki Haley's tone. You know, she comes off as very, you know, conversational, you know, very appealing. She's right. not off-putting. Uh, but, you know, I don't like the fact that she brings up contraception a lot. I don't think there's any kind of a contraception crisis in this country. I don't think more investment in contraception is going to get abortion numbers down. And I think she just has to kind of show some leadership, at least on some pro-life issues, where there is a pretty broad consensus. And I would like her a lot more if she did that. So, again, and, you know, it's not surprising. Anytime there's a policy change, politicians sometimes scramble to find wording and policies that, you know, they think will be appealing. And you see the Republicans kind of, you know, grappling with that right now. It's not, you know, the worst thing in the world. You know, we'll kind of have to let things go. I will say that, um, you know, whoever the Republican nominee is in 2024, they will realize that pro-lifers are an important part of their electoral coalition. And I think they will do, you know, if they are elected, do some good things for us while in office. So, you know, I'm concerned, but I'm not, not fretting over them. So, I mean, that's, that's uh, you know, because I know we're going to have to wrap this up here in a couple of minutes, but I mean, that's sort of where you're at right now. You're concerned about where this is, where, where this has been trending, but yeah. concerned, not panicking, not, you know, yeah. not, ready to, not ready to throw yourself off the bridge, right? Absolutely not. Yeah. And, and you know, uh, just one thing is that, you know, sometimes progress just takes a while. I mean, even though I disagree with this completely, I will give supporters of same-sex marriage credit for their persistence they lost the ballot box like 32 straight times before they won again i disagree with them totally but in a way i do admire their persistence i mean they did not let defeats discourage them or disappoint them they kept just chucking ballot proposals at us which we did a good job defeating you know people who support traditional marriage you know did succeed in prevailing uh but we couldn't prevail forever and uh you know policy was changed in some states uh supreme court ruled in their favor um and with you know, the overfell decision but it just shows that your know, persistence pays off and you know, we shouldn't necessarily let some let ballot box defeats you know stymie us or discourage us so I'll, I'll finish on this i think what that teaches us is that the politics and 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 the law are going to follow the culture, right? Mm -hmm. That's what happened with same-sex marriage. Absolutely. Same-sex marriage was an oddity until about 15, 20 years ago. And within mm -hmm. about 10 years, the, the law ended up conforming to it, right? Because mm -hmm. the culture changed. The culture changed significantly. Mm -hmm. And I would give the, the pro-life movement credit in this sense, is that they have really changed the culture over the last 40 mm -hmm. years on this. Uh, because they focused on changing the culture. And I think mm -hmm. that I think that, you know, obviously you continue to do the legal and, and you know political battles, but they're good at, at changing the culture around this. They're helped in large measure because of the science behind mm -hmm. biology. But but still they've done really good work on that. And I think that I would like to see, you know, whoever becomes president pursue obviously the 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 legal issues in this and the political issues on this. But I think that there's a much better or there, there's at least a much more powerful way in which they can lead in culture. And I think that does mean that you have to have some sort of a standard and you can't just say, I'm going to go where, you know, where the where the middle is. I, I think that there's a good strategy for going for the middle when you're talking about politics. But I think when you're talking about a president, I mean, that's more of a con congressional thing anyway. That's more of a legislator thing. Oh, I'm going to look for the middle. That makes sense. But when we're looking at a president or governor, 
you know, at the state level, you're looking for somebody who can lead. And I think that you've got some people on that stage who are good at leading uh, yeah. in that culture. And I think that's what gives me hope. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, Governor DeSantis did sign a six-week abortion ban in, in Florida. That was a good thing to do. Even Chris Christie in New Jersey, even though I think he's kind of the weakest on life issues, he did defund Planned Parenthood as governor of New Jersey. I mean, um, you know, I think that certainly he's not my favorite candidate, but he would be an improvement over Joe Biden. So, you know, I just think that, you know, again, you know, leadership is certainly important. And, you know, pro-lifers have really done well, despite some very strong cultural headwinds. We've lost ground on almost every other, like, social issue. But public opinion on sanctity of life issues has remained you know, fairly stable for a long time, despite the fact that people are becoming more secular and that other metrics that kind of would predict pro-life opinion, whether it be income, whether it be level four education, you know, these things are, you know, you wouldn't expect people to necessarily be pro-life or better educated more and wealthier. But even though we've become better educated and wealthier, you know, opinions remain stable. So, I mean, you know, we sometimes should pat ourselves on the back. We've, you know, done better than I think we sometimes give ourselves credit for. You know, we have a lot to do, uh, but I think that, you know, we have lots to be still optimistic about in, in the future. Michael J. New, at Michael underscore J underscore New on Twitter or X, depending on how you call it. Uh, so at nationalreview.com, uh, a contributor over there, as well as the Charlotte Logier Institute and the Catholic University of America. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for uh, stopping by and uh, and talking about this and uh, better days ahead, I'm sure. Definitely. Look forward to that. This is Ed Morrissey of HotAir.com for Town Hall. Western politicians, media, and cultural elites have demonstrated a complete failure to grasp reality in the wake of Hamas's October 7 massacres. Agitators for the Palestinian cause and the benighted students of academia have spent the last four weeks demanding a ceasefire on behalf of the Gazans. But that's not what Hamas wants. Last week, they told the New York Times that they wanted a state of permanent war with Israel as a means to its annihilation. Hamas's senior leader, Ghazi Hamad, has promised to continue the massacres until they have removed Israel and all of the Jews in the region. Ceasefires are useful when combatants see ways to peacefully coexist with each other. Hamas has never hidden its genocidal ambitions. Their only use for ceasefires is to gain new tactical advantages to conduct their genocide. When terrorists tell you who they are, believe them. I'm Ed Morrissey.